Greetings, fine, noisy people of the NorCal and beyond. I'm Lob Instagon. And I'm Austin Rich. And together, we are... Noise Stallions! We are here to tell you all about a most bodacious and excellent virtual happening that is afoot. NorCal Noise Fest! That's right, Lob. The NorCal Noise Fest is the longest-running noise event in the country. Whoa! Whoa. And this year, it'll happen in the screen on your preferred electronic device of choice. Virtually happening in any room of your house. Virtually, literally, virtually. No way, dude. Way! I heard, too, that... NF2020 will feature an outstanding array of amazing sound artists from all over the international world and beyond, and will even include an appearance by one of the actual wonders of the modern world. Whoa! It's going to be virtually happening, literally, over the NorCal Noise Fest channel on YouTube. So you need to have a computer or a smartphone to find it. Listen up, my dudes. It will happen over October 2nd through the 4th. Starting at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, Friday, October 2nd, and we'll broadcast exclusive material and live streams from over 75 artists. Like, it's going to be the most excellent virtual and quarantined programming, my dude. The, the best, best noise, noise fest, fest ever. I'm Lob Instagon. I'm Austin Rich. And, and we, we are, are Noise, noise Stallions. And we'll see you at NorCal Noise Fest 2020. More details at NorCalNoiseFest.com. Meanwhile. As we move on to explore in deep space, we're going to build some sort of complexes in near-Earth orbit to take on those journeys. Certainly not as big as stations, but requiring some of the same kind of effort to do that as was done on stations. Station took over 40 assembly missions and about 12 years to build on orbit. If we had had a larger launch vehicle capable of carrying bigger volumes, and more mass, we could have done that with significantly fewer flights. That would have reduced the cost and shorten the time it took to do it. And it would have reduced the risk relative to the number of missions that you have to string together to make that happen.
if we're going to be successful going forward, having a vehicle that can carry large amounts of mass into low Earth orbit is important to make that happen. Just some examples to think of. Imagine if the James Webb Telescope was able to be designed to fit in a larger volume and launched into orbit. It wouldn't have to have the same amount of on-orbit um, kind of erection that it has today. And so you can imagine that it would have been simpler and less costly to build a, a mechanism like that. about capabilities based. In fact, I believe we've been developing capabilities for human spaceflight since the beginning of human spaceflight. If you look at what Mercury was, Mercury was about could we get a, a, an astronaut to orbit and return him safely, just the launch and the recovery. figure that out, the next capability was can we exploit space for productive humans. And Gemini brought us the ability to do rendezvous and docking, to do spacewalks, things that we'd need on the surface of the moon with the goal of Apollo to be able to focus on, on an end, end point of getting the first crew to the moon and return them safely. Albeit with a very short duration capability because that was at the time of technology that we could actually execute. Following on Apollo, the thought was with shuttle was let's go exploit space more routinely, more frequently, for longer periods of time. Let's do research uh, from this, the payload bay. Let's deploy telescopes. Let's deploy science. And then let's deploy a space station. The space station and the shuttle were about permanent living off the planet. Think about that capabilities evolution of what we've been able to do. The next logical step is permanent capabilities of life on another celestial body. Post-hurricane, glory, wind. 
And so what we want to do with these capabilities now is, as you pointed out, we want to make sure that we evolve this vehicle according to the mission demand. There are a couple ways you could develop a system to put crew on Mars. You could build the in-state 130-ton vehicle as well as our world do. But we have a lot of missions along the way to develop further human capabilities, as you pointed out with the asteroid retriever mission. Being able to dock uh, uh, with a vehicle that is uh, in a deep retrograde orbit to maneuver in proximity to a, an asteroid, which is a much smaller mass. Mid-Valley, looking at exploration into deep space, mutations. Welcome to September. That's right, uh, yeah, it's here. <laughs> Can you believe it? Um, it feels like a very short time ago. It was March and, well... Some time passed, and wow, <laughs> look at the calendar. Oh my. I'm glad I'm not the only one uh, that is uh, going through this, because it would start to seem very, very strange uh, if I were um, alone in this. Uh, and it's equally eerie for those of us here in the Lava Lamp Lounge, because uh, we are certainly dealing with... Um, some red skies at morning, sailors take warning uh, sort of situation. Um, I'm sure this is all over the news, and this is probably not at all even um, unknown to you listening out in beautiful split Croatia, uh, but uh, we actually are experiencing a number of extreme fires here uh, near Salem. And so we've had red skies, clouds of smoke. It's been pretty brutal and grim. And, uh, well, my mind has been on this fantasy of looking at deep space exploration. It's Mid-Valley Mutations, and it goes like this. being able to uh, being perform able to those rendezvous and station-keeping station operations, operations, to be able to support human life beyond the protection of low Earth orbit of Van Allen belts, the deep space radiation exposure that we still have to mitigate. We're learning on space station how to maintain the health of the crew, now we want to exploit that going deeper.
So as you look at the roadmap to Mars, there are a number of things that we're going to do along the way that uh, don't demand us to build a 130-ton vehicle on day one, but we grow into it and evolve along with the mission. Your, your uh, missions that you show for 2017 EM-1 is the 70 growing to 105 ton capability and then as we go deeper and deeper into space eventually putting crew on the surface of Mars we'll need that 130 ton capability. I think it's a wise approach to build uh, as we go, and uh, I, I sure like the, uh, the reference you make to inspiration. When I think of this mission, I think we are within reach of putting through on the surface of Mars in our lifetime, folks sitting in this room. And I remember the, the photo from Apollo with the Earthrise on a Christmas morning. And think about being the first crew on Mars. Well, tonight go out and try to find Mars in the night sky. Be that first crew on Mars to try to find Earth in the night sky. It's pretty inspirational thought. Thanks, Charlie. And, and I, I know you have a lot of experience in the international world, so is there any, is there any role in this activity for the international world? There absolutely is. As we just discussed, the capabilities evolving to a launch vehicle are a piece of the total system that we'll need to explore. But we need uh, deep space transportation propulsion. Uh, we need habitats that can support the crew for long duration in space. Systems. And if you look at what we did on Space Station, each of the partners came with a talent and capability. Looking at exploration. You're listening to klfm.org in beautiful split Croatia. Into deep space. Mutations. that combined to create today's space station. We stepped out there and gave the Russians the responsibility for guidance, nav, and control for the main uh, habitat living command post for the crew. laboratory module, but also the solar arrays uh, and the uh, ability to, to maintain control of the attitude of the station. The Japanese brought their own laboratory module, as did the Europeans. The Canadians brought robotics. Think of that model and how successful it's been. We'll need to do the same thing with exploration, but our partners will bring those capabilities I mentioned that we need, landers, habitats for deep space, the ability to protect crew from radiation as we go out beyond and further into, into space. So.
Each of them can each contribute them can and build upon, build upon the infrastructure, the infrastructure of, the of the SLS and Orion, which, which supports, supports getting all, all, that, all that capability out to space. Four of us have been working really closely together, not only to ensure the SLS Orion programs are executed well. But also to ensure that there's an understanding and advocacy for where we're going. I had a chance to go to Baikonur for the launch last week, and it was my first trip over there. And it was fascinating um, to see the system the Russians have in place and how, um, how disciplined that is, how steeped in tradition it is. But I couldn't help but think uh, while I was there that here I was halfway around the world in one of two spots where humans could be launched into space and uh, neither of those two is the United States at the moment. So I think it's just absolutely critical that we move forward with the SLS and Orion programs to recapture that leadership that is um, rightfully ours, I think. Forward. If we don't pick up that mantle, there are other countries in the world that are ready to, for the national prestige, for the technology developments that will come out of that and bolster their economies, and, um, and for the inspiration for their children to study math and science. So just absolutely just important absolutely that we move ahead uh, with these programs, these programs and, and cause those things to happen. to happen. If you think about um, going to Europa, for example, the additional thrust of an SLS could get us there in two years versus what's imagined as a 10-year mission with the rockets that exist today. So a significant change in the capability. And that group initially started out with a baseline of using smaller launch vehicles, but as they went through their studies, quickly came to a conclusion that a large launch vehicle was really the efficient and affordable way to do a mission into deep space.
and, and they kind of, they kind um, of validated, validated the path, the path that NASA's, that NASA's on. on. I think it's also think important, it's important to talk about SLS, SLS as, as um, an affordable vehicle. vehicle. Reuse, reuse of shuttle main, shuttle engines, main engines, of boosters, uh, boosters and all that and reduces, reduces the development, development costs that's necessary, necessary, takes risk takes out of the program, program adds, to adds to affordability. affordability. Um, certainly certainly as, a as a team, we are tightly we're managing the execution, execution of these programs, programs and, and um, SLS, at, SLS the at, the at the moment is about five about months five ahead months of schedule and below budget in its development. development. That's incredible, That's incredible for, for a, um, a system of this complexity. complexity. And so keeping so that keeping focus that is um, important to keep it affordable. And then, um, and then finally, finally, if you look at the look cost, at the per, cost pound, per pound, that we're going to be able to take into low Earth orbit. It's right in line with the cost per pound that we're seeing on the CRS contracts today and other commercially available rockets that are taking payloads into space. And then that's not considering the cost benefits you get out of, as I mentioned, being able to do these missions with fewer flights, larger pieces that require less integration and taking the risk out of it. So hey, we're, so right, we're on right on the edge of edge being able to do this, this, as Charlie mentioned. Charlie mentioned. You know, and so we have so just we got have to just rally around, around um, putting, the putting the advocacy in place, in place to push, push SLS, SLS and Orion, and Orion through, the through the development phases, phase, get that capability in place, place um, reassume our rightful, our rightful place as the leader of the international community that's doing exploration, and continuing on. And it's just exciting it's just to be a part of uh, the team doing that, and I can tell you that the folks working on it are just really stoked, especially the younger folks, to be working on the uh, next generation of exploration uh, beyond, beyond Earth. Again, I think, you know, as John said, it's nice to get a little independent confirmation that the laws of physics are still true, and there is real advantages of this big rocket to, to go do the assembly. So as John tried to describe to you for, for the International Space Station, how it could have been done much simpler, it's neat when we see somebody else coming in to take a look at a Mars uh, class mission, and they come back and they say, hey, you really need that size rocket to pull this mission off. So it's, it's really good to see that confirmation that they just physics still holds and, and there is some real advantages to what we're doing. And the progress at math is also tremendous to so. Julie, why don't we talk a little bit about the, the challenges to get to Mars? And so if you think about going to Mars, that with people, that'll be 
harder than anything we've ever done. Okay, it's instead of being a few hundred miles away, we're going to be 35 you know, millions of miles away, and it takes us as opposed to a few days, like when we did lunar missions or when we take you know, a few hours and we take people up. We're going to be gone for years. Okay, and then assuming we were on a land, which is I think what our goal is, we're going to have to live there. We're going to have to live in a place never been. We're going to have to live and have all the, the, the living things, the tools, the shelters, etc. An environment we don't know something about, but we don't know everything about. And so, you know, I look at it as a, you know, I mean, I hike a lot and I'm looking at this as a big expedition. You know, when we set out on an expedition, we're going somewhere no one's ever been. I mean, we've sent some robotics, but no person's ever been. We're going to be in an environment that we don't know everything about it. We're going to be gone longer, and somehow or another, we've got to bring everything with us to be able to deal with whatever's going to come our way, because I guarantee you we're going to find out stuff. We'll be real smart about this, how we do things, but we're going to find out stuff we've never done, so we've got to be prepared for that. So instead of, you know, when we, when we put the laboratory on Mars, you know, a while ago, and we were all terrified about landing a ton, you know, a small car or any small SUV on the surface, we're going to be landing. 40 pounds of stuff. So we're landing the equivalent of houses, multiple houses on the surface. And so those are the type of, you know, magnitudes of things that we have to deal with. And, uh, you know, it's really hard to get off the ground. Okay, I mean, it just takes so much capability. And the only practical way to do this is with a large rocket. And that large rocket's in the Navy. As we think As about we how we're going to do this, we've got to do it in a stepwise, stepwise fashion. fashion. We aren't just going to go, go, you know, pile everything pile on the rocket and head there tomorrow. tomorrow. We've got to go got and to go have a thoughtful, have a thoughtful way, way to deal with solving, solving some of the problems, problems or some of the challenges, the challenges that we have, such as how, how are people how going to deal with living in space a long time? How are we going to position all these things to get them there at the right time? And so you and think so about you it, think you, have it you have transportation, you have life support, life support and then you have and then you landing and living on the surface of Mars. And so for, from a transportation standpoint, we talked a little bit about SLS. Well, having a big rocket is going to make this possible because you have a lot to bring up there. That 40 tons doesn't come easy unless if you were to use it with, um, you know, our current expendable size rockets, we'd be launching all the time to just get stuff up there. I'm not sure it would be very practical. Then you think about it, we're taking people. people, you know, I mean, robotics, robotics are, absolutely are absolutely critical for us being able to do this, but when you take people, it kind of ratchets the game up even further.
I mean, every, I mean every, we always design we always our rockets design our to be rockets reliable for every mission, but when you have people on there, that's a whole other ball game, you know, in terms of how you, how you think about it, how you feel about it. As we do that, we're going to build off some of the systems we have experience with because we're going to be asking these systems to do even more. If we were to say, okay, we're going to go develop a brand new you know, rocket propulsion that's you know, Six Sigma to the best performance, it's like, okay, we could do that, but we'd be taking added risk. And so taking an approach where we build off what we know and incrementally improve it, you know, it is you know, the right way from a risk managed way to get people there. And we're doing that by using RS-25 and then evolving those to be able to um, solve this mission. We also got to think about how to come back. How do we get people into the orbit? How do we land? And that's going to be quite a number of different transportation systems that we're going to have to put together. And as we mentioned earlier, we will be relying on um, partners to do some of this. This is a big venture. It, you know, it's not like one single company is going to do this. This will be a, a world-type effort and um, take the capabilities, you know, um, both financially as well, as well as people to do that. In terms of the life support, you know, think about we're going to have people, you know, in space a long time on the surface of the planet and then coming back. And we're talking years. We've learned a lot being with station. Um, we talked about some of the earlier precursor missions about being able to position things in space. And those things will allow us to learn more about that environment and get us ready, you know, for taking that next big step. And then the landing side of it, you know, we think back on um, when MSL went down and, and believe me, we. Our propulsion was bringing it down a lot of the way, so we were thinking about that pretty hard. Um, um, now we're going to be landing a lot more stuff, and we have people. Perfecting the systems to do that are going to be critical, you know, because we, I mean, we're not going to go and, and view the goal and then we don't want the, the, you know, to have any doubt that we can actually get there. You know, it's a lot of things, and you think about it and say, oh my, that's something that, you know, is the stuff of science fiction, but it's not. You know, we really have learned a lot in space over the last 50 years. We're learning and putting more things together and that basic infrastructure. And that's what we're talking about with the capabilities thing. It's, it's really an infrastructure. We're putting in place the infrastructure so we can be space bearers.
and that is is really what it's all about. And you're you don't just say I'm going to go do it and do that tomorrow. You've got to think about it, plan it. There'll be a number of different missions and pieces that go together. But I think the type of um, accomplishments we've had today, the things we're doing today, and the things we're going to do here very near in the future show that we're ready to do that. And you know, I think. Uh, as a set of partners, as a set of um, capabilities that we have with NASA leading the way to do something that's never been done. I think we're ready to go do that. So I'm, I'm pretty excited and I want to be part of that making science fiction a reality. Solving, you know, I mean, talk about it from, I'm, I'm a glasses, so I always look at, okay, what's it going to take to do that? But by doing that, I think you accomplish a lot more. And we're going to face a lot of things and solve a lot of, um, you know, things that are based on physics. In doing this, we'll increase the scientific knowledge of our country. We, again, we'll reestablish a leadership capability. I mean, we'll be, uh, every time you go into space, we'll do something different, we learn things, we bring back and develop products, we develop capabilities we never dreamed of. And so that'll be a part of it. Mid-Valley. Looking at exploration. You're listening to KLFM. Dot org in beautiful split Croatia into deep space mutations. You know, space, space, the space economically, you know, the space business is a, a very large business for the U.S. and worldwide, and it's great. Okay, this will um, create, you know, not just some, you know, create jobs for the people who are in the industry, industry but it will create things that none of us can even imagine. And then again, it will, you know, further where humankind goes. I mean, it's, um, you know, I think we're born with that, you know, desire to move forward, to improve life, to improve life for our children, to learn new things. And this will be, you know, maybe it's not the ultimate, but it, it's certainly a big step along that way. Sustainability, I think, is really at the heart of the SLS and Orion program. Basically, when we talk about Orion, it's the multi-purpose crew vehicle. So both SLS and Orion are designed to really, really do more than one mission, not be optimized for for just one, but be spread out among many missions. talked about being able to launch not only Orion, but to be able to launch large payloads. I'm always amazed at the fact, as John said, that it took a, would have taken almost uh, almost three dozen shuttle launches to put up 
the International Space Station and SLS has done it in only two. That's a factor of 20 improvement. And not just in the number of launches, but think about the time. You can take something that took a decade and compress it into two or just two launches. Same thing's true with exploring the outer planets with SLS. Science payloads that go out can be done in half the time. So rather than a researcher waiting for a decade or more to get his data back, or when you think about the entire mission, maybe 20 years from the time you design a mission today until the time you get the data back, if you can cut that time in half, the amount of research that you can do is just phenomenally increased. Secondly, Orion is the multi-purpose crew vehicle, so not only going to assist lunar space, but also back to potentially asteroids, and uh, uh, then to the moons of Mars, and then to Mars is a, is a vehicle that allows us to explore uh, our solar system without having to have different uh, systems designed for each one of those missions. The fundamental thing here is to have many missions that you can spread the cost over, and that leads us to sustainability. The second thing is both uh, at, at all of our companies, modern manufacturing techniques are really speeding up the production process and bringing down the cost. already talked about down at MAP, where we're putting in automated friction stir welding systems. The same thing's true. Uh, where we're building Orion, we're using a lot of what we call the digital tapestry, where we go directly from design to manufacturing without intermediate steps along the way. And using things like additive manufacturing, what many people call printing parts today, is really accelerating some of these processes even more than some of us dreamed of just a few years ago. Some of our planetary missions are actually flying printed parts today, and we're seeing a phenomenal increase, sometimes a factor of six to 10 in the cycle time that it takes to build these parts, and those are being folded into our manufacturing processes as we're going forward. Thing we're doing is, uh, as we talk about all of our robot explorers that are kind of going away and uh, before uh, humans go and actually understanding the environment, I was really struck by some of the uh, science that just came back from the Kepler mission.
In Kepler, I'm, I'm sure that you saw in the press that we now estimate that over 10 billion planets in our galaxy are within what's called the habitable zone, where liquid water uh, is able to uh, exist uh, on or near the surface of the planet. 10 billion planets. People were excited when they found out that perhaps the closest one was only 12, 12 light years away.
the devil? Now, 12 years a light year away, to give you some examples, the, uh, the Voyagers would take about 250,000 years to get there.
But I think we forget that the uh, nearest planet in the habitable zone is actually only about 35 million miles away, and that happens to be Mars. We know now that uh, from the rovers and robotic spacecraft that we sent to Mars, that Mars at one time was, was very wet. In fact, recent data coming back from Curiosity says that within a cubic uh, meter or so of Martian soil, there's about half a pint of water uh, trapped in that soil. And as you go deeper in the Martian surface, there's probably a place at a few thousand feet that there's actually even liquid water today. So we have a planet that's not very far away that's uh, explorable by humans, and that's pretty exciting. So we're going to learn about these, uh, these planets that are probably spread all over our galaxy, and the closest one to Earth is not 12 light years away, it's a nine-month journey, and that's what Orion is ultimately um, uh, focused on us, our ultimate destination with Orion and the SLA system. And that's, that is really, really exciting to think about that within our lifetime we can actually explore one of these uh, planets that, that uh, now we know is, is pretty common throughout, uh, throughout the galaxy and even more so throughout the universe. But to do but that, to do a that, sustainable program means that, means that we're able to go with the funding that we have, and basically by bringing our international partners in to, to do the pieces that they want to do, I think that we can do this uh, in a period that uh, will be sustainable. And part of that sustainability is having launch rates that are, are, are frequent for two reasons. One, that helps us uh, not only with human exploration, but also with many of the robotic programs that we want to do. And secondly, as Julie talked about, it allows us to develop the capabilities to do this in an incremental way and not in, in one huge mission, but in many missions along the way that exploration opens up new opportunities, not only for us, but for our international partners who, who express a great desire to come along beside us and be part of this great journey of exploration. It's pretty, uh, pretty interesting to think about uh, another planet in the habitable zone. It's definitely worth exploring. So kind of, kind of interesting ways to, to think about this and to frame it in light and tie into science. Now, I talked a little bit about some of the Orion milestones that, that are out there. Are there any that you'd like to highlight or add? Two things on the Orion that I'm real excited about is we just have power up. And power up on a spacecraft is, is really an exciting time. That's when you're really starting to get into the launch flight. 
So we're so now within, uh, within, within a year of launch. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to me that we're launching Maven uh, Monday of next week, and then we immediately are, are looking at being in launch flow for Orion. So we just powered Orion up. All the avionics and uh, power conditioning units and everything came up and are, and are running just fine. We're running the software that we'll actually fly with. The next uh, big event is the delivery of the heat shield. This is up at Textron right now, uh, getting its final testing done. This is the heat shield that will protect us uh, as we re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, as uh, as Gersh said earlier, we'll be about 80% of the velocity of coming back from the moon. We want to see how this heat shield performs. It'll be delivered to the Cape uh, in just a few months and made it up with the Orion spacecraft. So we're, we're really excited about uh, seeing the heat shield come in together. Right now we're putting all of the, uh, uh, the uh, external equipment on, all the boxes and avionics and uh, things that uh, uh, tubing, welding and everything is going on right now, some of the automated uh, tube welding processes that we have. The, the flow down at the ONC building in the Cape is just phenomenal to watch. And so uh, we're just uh, getting into the launch flow and, and ready to, uh, to move forward to our very first uh, test flight, which is uh, now within a year from today. We've talked a little bit about many aspects and challenges of deep space exploration. I happen to, to get this image here, and you're seeing here an actual image taken from NASA's Cassini spacecraft. And this image is going to be released today. You're seeing it for the first time here at the museum. Cassini was able to capture 323 images in four hours. And this image you're looking at on the screen is a mosaic that uses 141 of those images. If you look on there, you can see what we mean by kind of deep space in a way. There's, there's our home planet, the Earth. You can also see Mars, and you can see Venus. And so when you when you look at this perspective, it maybe it makes you think a little bit about what we're talking about here. We're building systems, hardware, putting capabilities in place that are going to allow us to go move humans into these various regions of space. So when we, we kind of idly talk about nine months to Mars, you could kind of see the dimensions there.
the moon is kind of lost in this image. The space station is almost in the Earth's atmosphere, so you can't even see it. So if you look at this, where we are today, we've really not gone very far in space with humans. Really, our job and the systems and the hardware we're putting together is going to enable us to go to these kind of regions. And I think this is a pretty compelling image when you look at this and you think about it in those lights. This should, this should challenge us and think about what's in front of us and get us excited about how we're going to use these capabilities and hardware we're putting together to go do some pretty exciting things coming in the future. Ultimately, we believe what we learn here will have direct application and benefit back to us here on the Earth. Pretty exciting times. One of the uh, questions, uh, one of the things you proposed was that our international partners aren't ready to kind of step up and join this. And I, I really don't believe that's true for two reasons. I'll give you two concrete examples. I was in uh, China uh, with, with several uh, members on the panel here at the uh, International Astronomical Federation, the IEC. And at that, uh, at that conference, many of our international partners talked about roles that they want and desire to play in space exploration. In fact, there's a conference, uh, head of agencies actually coming up in January. So there's a, an enormous amount of interest in doing that. I'd also point to uh, more than interest, as you I'm sure where ESA is actually providing the uh, service module for Orion. So this is a piece of hardware that's already in design. As a matter of fact, uh, shortly after the first of the year, we'll have the uh, uh, PDR, the preliminary design review for the Orion service module, being built by Astrium in Bremen uh, for for the uh, exploration missions that are that are coming up. So our international partners are not only excited about the possibility of being part of it, they are part of it today. And that's one of the things that's making this affordable and sustainable uh, moving forward. I think the, um, the budget challenges are precisely why we're focused on developing capabilities first uh, so that we can take this stepwise and once those capabilities are in place then we can develop the next set of capabilities that are going to be necessary um, to continue this journey. Stability with that funding over a long period of time I think is as important as the level of funding uh, going forward so that we can do that.
think if you go back to one of my slides where I showed the six things that we think are important in this idea, those six things came about basically how do we keep this program moving forward in a real and measurable way where we're making real progress along the way, but ultimately we're putting in place hardware and capabilities that will allow us to go do the Mars class mission. If we laid out a, a path directly to Mars and we laid out all the vehicles and all the testing and all the work to get there, then you end up with you know, a fairly long period of time with a lot of funding that goes into that activity that, that says this program is something maybe we don't want to go do. But if I put it in incremental pieces where we're making real objectives going forward, it, it makes sense. If you look at this asteroid redirect mission, we basically had SLS and Orion some folks some looked folks at bringing this asteroid, asteroid back into the back vicinity of the, vicinity the moon. moon. We were able to add it in with essentially with no additions to either SLS or Orion. Or Orion. Orion had the basic capability to support the EVA. The SLS, even in the early configurations with a 70 metric ton capability, it had the ability to get to the distant retrograde orbit around the moon in service. So you're seeing evidence right there. We put components together that weren't point focused for one particular mission. They were generic in nature, and then when a new desire comes along to go do something, we can do a mission like the asteroid redirect mission in a fairly short period of time. Then we're going to leverage off of that mission to gain more skills, to put more things in our toolbox, to allow us to keep pushing further into space. going to do it for us this week here on the program. Mid-Valley Mutations taking a look at deep space exploration. And uh, not a moment too soon because our own outdoors here in Salem looks like the surface of Mars. So might as well get used to living in deep space. Uh, it's pretty eerie, it's pretty creepy, I will be honest, but it actually seems to be getting better a little bit, maybe? Oh, gosh, there's that optimism creeping in again. Sorry about that. Probably not the best uh, trait to uh, exhibit right now. Uh, why don't we just talk about what we've been listening to? A lot of new stuff things that I've been uh, enjoying, uh, and then uh, one new to me thing, actually, that's not new. Uh, looks like most of it's from the last year or two, which is uh, pretty cool. Uh, kick things off with Wind and Clouds by Chris Finney and Hal McGee, two heavy hitters in the DIY scene that uh, I'm quite a big fan of, uh, and that's from their cooperative principle release on Harsh Reality. Uh, follow that up with Am Trefo by P16D4. Uh, something I actually just recently discovered, but it is very, very cool. Uh, and that's from a cassette version of an RRR Records release. So um, I don't know where that came from or how it got to be on cassette, but there it is. Uh, then we went to Instagon 
with the Mars installment from the planet's disc because, well, are outdoors right now, as it were. And uh, yeah, that one was My Little Red Planet. Then we went into two tracks by Arvo Zylo from the Children of the Stones. Double three-inch CDR release from Ballast, uh, which uh, is pretty, pretty cool, actually. Uh, I, I'm, most of Arvo's stuff is pretty excellent, but that little double disc thing there, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, then we moved on to uh, some more harsh reality, uh, this time from Brunk, bringing us Soften the Blow. Uh, that's from the Electronic Cottage compilation number seven, uh, curated by uh, well, Hal and Chris again. Uh, and um, yeah, it was a pretty good double album set of some pretty fun stuff. Uh, which, you know, I can't stay away from the uh, Hal McGee releases, so... We have Girls on Fire with Darling I Love You. Uh, that is the first new Girls on Fire release in quite some time. Uh, I'm kind of blown away. Uh, and that's actually a split with Hal McGee from the EC Splits series where he uh, had a bunch of different artists who kind of signed up for this project and then he uh, decided which of them are gonna do split releases together, uh, which was a lot of fun. And actually I made one for that series too. Uh, but the, the Girls on Fire uh, section, um, Confessions of an Emoji Addict, is uh, pretty fantastic. Uh, another uh, selection from one of those Dylan Hauser musical postcards uh, that is um, in rent, I think. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, I've probably talked him up a million times on this show, but just. Uh, case I haven't said enough, um, those musical postcards are pretty great. They come in the mail, it's like a little song that you get uh, via the post, and it's, uh, I don't know, there's something very charming about that. And then we closed uh, with a little live mini mutations jam, trying out a couple pieces of gear that uh, I'm still kind of getting used to. Uh, we've really not gone very far. Uh, something that I uh, kind of tried out, which, uh, yeah, I don't know, we'll see, that's kind of half of the fun of this show, is uh, trying out cool, weird, fun things uh, to see if they work. Uh, and then we're going to close here with a little M nominized from uh, that EC compilation number seven. It's a two-disc one, so uh, I get to pick two, right? That's how it works. Yeah, sure. Uh, oh man, things have been pretty strange and funky and weird nationally, locally, <laughs> in my life and outside of it. So, um, yeah, we're trying our best to kind of cling to the tracks and not get flung as we hit these curves. But um, you never know how things turn out. Uh, I've been actually shocked that uh, I've managed to maintain a pretty consistent release schedule during the pandemic and I'm hoping that I continue that streak um, but you never know sometimes things kind of go off the tracks as it were and then uh, you gotta have all this crew come in to clean up and it takes a while so uh, we're just gonna keep things going as best we can you might get more of these DJ shows where I kind of toss 
in a little live jam at the end for fun, but most of the show's a little quicker to us. We'll see. Who knows? Uh, it's hard to say. Sometimes these things just happen the way they happen. You gotta be okay with that. I know I am. Speaking of things I am okay with, we are at the end of the Adventures of Marcus Little. Thank you, everybody, who tuned in and listened to the podcast as it was being released. Uh, thank you who, to people who heard it on other radio stations. It was airing in a number of forms on a number of stations. And, yeah, uh, thank you, everyone. It was a fun project. I, I'd like to do something like that again. I don't know how, don't know what, don't know when. We'll see. That one took two years to put together, so... Maybe not like that. <laughs> but we'll see. I mean, like I said, there's a lot of different ways we could go, and uh, I'm going to have fun with it. So don't, uh, don't imagine um, you'll have to wait too long to find out about it. But yes, keep looking at MarcusLittleAdventures.com to find and hear about that program. There's going to be some bonus tidbits dropping into the podcast eventually. And then, uh, yeah blu-ray dvd that's on the horizon so please listen closely for clues and information about that we're gonna flip somewhere in between a radio zine to the front of our program now that we've kind of gotten a little bit of that marcus little stuff out of our system so uh, the way things are going to run is that we'll have when there's a new episode dun 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 uh, episodes of Somewhere in Between at the beginning of this show, and then we'll close with a little Dinosaur Radio Theater. I think that's going to be the plan for a while. However, we are going to have a little bit of a gap in that Somewhere in Between cycle because they're doing some reruns for a month to kind of gear up for the next batch of shows. So, we're going to be doing a much longer jam than we normally do for September while that gets so uh, be, be prepared for some longer mixes. I'm kind of excited about that part. I've been doing some shorter stuff on purpose, which I appreciate very much because it gives me an opportunity to uh, get other things done. But those things are done. So let's see how this goes. I'm talking too much, and we still got some Rocky Jordan to get into. So why don't I just wrap things up by saying you guys are wonderful, you guys are beautiful, and without you there would be no be seeing you. You're listening to klfm.org in beautiful split. Croatia. Buy wisely. Buy for flavor. Buy Del Monte. Del Monte, the brand you trust for flavor in so many good foods. Time now for Rocky Jordan. Brought to you today by Del Monte Tomato Products. Not far from the Mosque Sultan Hassan in Cairo stands the Café Tambourine, run by Rocky Jordan. 
The Café Tambourine, crowded with forgotten men, alive with the babble of many languages. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against the backdrop of antiquity. Del Monte presents Rocky Jordan and this week's story, A Stranger to the Desert. It was like any closing time at the tambourine. The last of the stragglers at the bar had been sent on their way. All my help had cleared up and left. I had just locked the front door and cut the light when my eye caught this figure out through the big front window. He was walking under the dim street light across the intersection with unsteady steps like one filled with arrack. I wouldn't have looked twice except for the way he kept coming, directly toward the tambourine, closer and closer. And without swerving a step, he walked straight through the plate glass window. He fell face down on the window shelf and didn't move. But I did. I was about to drag the man to his feet, but then I knew better. He wasn't drunk at all. He was dead, with a knife between his shoulder blades. Right away, I put in a call for Sam Sabaya of the Cairo police. And before I'd hung up the phone, a crowd had begun to gather. It always happens. They materialize out of nowhere. And in less than ten minutes, Sam appeared on the scene and took over. Let me through, please. Let me through. Greco, disperse the crowd. At once, Captain Sabaya. Move back. Be gone. Over here. Jordan. Jordan. Who is this man? Never saw him before, Sam. He just happened to pick my window. Help me turn him over. Sure. Carefully. I trust, Jordan, that you did not become overly curious. Didn't touch him, Sam. It's all yours. His pockets are empty. There seems to be no identification. Somebody made sure of that, even to tearing the labels off his suit. Yes, I see. Look at him, Sam. What do you make of it? There's much to be learned, Jordan. The rough hands of a laborer, the weather-beaten skin. I'm noticing something else. His face. Somehow it's different. Yes, he's not a man of the East, that much we know. The oval shape, high cheekbones, sharp nose. Never seen any type like it. As you say, Jordan, even in Cairo, where nationalities come from all over the world, this man is most unusual. The only thing that makes sense is the knife in his back. Yes. But for the moment, this strange man remains one of Cairo's unknown dead. That's all there is? Certainly not, Jordan. A routine check with the Canadian consul today informed me that a Dr. Willoughby... A noted anthropologist arrived two weeks ago for study at the Cairo University. Oh, he could help. I shall have the body removed to the morgue and call in Dr. Willoughby for consultation. You mind if I join you? On the contrary, Jordan. Come along. We went to police headquarters. In about an hour, a white-thatched, energetic little man arrived and introduced himself as Dr. Willoughby. He eyed us sharply as Sam took us down into the morgue. Then we stood looking at the lifeless man. Observe now, Dr. Willoughby. Ah, yes, now we shall see, now we shall see. You will doubtless realize why we were puzzled by this man. In a moment, please. Mm. Well-proportioned, short. But the face, Doctor. Yes, yes, broad, oval, prominent cheekbones, long, narrow nose. Most incredible, most incredible. Now, then you can tell us. And there, as I thought, traces of the epicanthic fold. Mind explaining that? The Mongolian fold on the eyelids. I cannot get over it, gentlemen. Indeed, Dr. Willoughby. And uh, what manner of man is this? Surely a stranger to the desert, Captain Sabaya. Well, let's have it. What is he? What is he, Mr. Jordan? This man is an Eskimo. Eskimo? Eskimo, did you say? Mr. Jordan, indeed I did. A test, if you please, the uh, coarse black hair, the light brown of the body, and the copper color of the cheeks. Nevertheless, Doctor... This man is truly an Eskimo. What would an Eskimo be doing in Cairo? Aha, Mr. Jordan. 
That is a question I must ask of you. No, we could have asked questions like that for the rest of the night without any answers. Instead, I went back to the tambourine. But this business of an Eskimo in Egypt had me wondering, especially when he falls through my window with a knife in his back. Well, I had to make some arrangements to get my front window boarded up, and after that, I get some sleep. The next morning, I just opened up and was waiting for the help to show, and in walked two more strange people. About five steps behind the first walked a big-robed Yemenite, and in the lead, hair stacked high in her head above slanting eyes and a sleek figure and jeweled platform shoes was a woman. Her heavy perfume came in way ahead of her. She was very delicate and small, and in her hand was a very delicate and small gun. Where is it, Mr. Jordan? Where's what, lady? Give a civil reply, America. Silence, Jabu. I think of the money, Mr. Jordan. Oh, sure, the, the money. I think you know what I'm talking about. Where is it? Any special amount? All of it. Ten thousand pounds. Forty thousand dollars to you, in. Enough, Chabu. I am speaking. Your command, my lady. Quick me now, Mr. Jordan. Look, uh, supposing we put away the artillery, huh? I'll sit down, have a nice cool drink. You still pretend not to know what I'm talking about? It happens, I don't. We shall find out. Jabu, step around me. Search him thoroughly. With the greatest of pleasure. You got big hands, Jabu, but keep them off of me. I can use them well, Jordan. Only search him, Jabu. He's covered with my gun. Mm. There is only the pound note in his wallet, my lady. Try the cash register, then. Keep looking. Listen, if you're hunting for 40,000 around here, give it up. Here is the bank book, my lady, under the counter. Bring it to me, Jabu. Then step back. No luck again, lady. I haven't put money like that in the bank. Oh, I see. But there are many places to hide money. Perhaps Jabu must not be so gentle. My way is best. Such as this, Jordan. Hey. Quite a man, Jabu, with your lady holding a gun. I do as my lady commands. Even a slipping a knife in somebody's back? Guard your words. Kelp! <laughs> Enough, Jabu. Perhaps Mr. Jordan wishes time to consider the error of his way. And I take it you'll be back. Perhaps. In the meantime, you might also ponder on how short life can be. So very short, Effendi. Come now, Jabu. Follow behind. She kept the tiny gun in her tiny hand and walked out the door with Jabu the correct distance behind. I held it a second and got to the door just in time to see their car around the corner of block down and disappear. It was all too much on schedule. I couldn't say why, but somehow I knew it was all tied up. This Yemenite and his lady and the Eskimo in Cairo. Del Monte Foods is presenting tonight's adventure with Rocky Jordan. Let's drop in on the Tyler family and listen to a little family conference going on in the kitchen. You know, dear, I want to have something special when Barbara and Tom come over for dinner tomorrow. Oh, shucks. I know Tom will go for anything you fix, so don't go to a lot of bother. Well, say, I know. Why not start off with some ice-cold tomato juice? That's a good idea. Del Monte tomato juice, the perfect way to start a meal. How right you are, Mrs. Tyler. Del Monte tomato juice makes a perfect appetizer. Nothing could be easier to serve. 
yet it gives a special extra lift to meals. That's because... Del Monte tomato juice is fresh tasting. Del Monte tomato juice is natural tasting. Del Monte tomato juice is refreshing. Fresh tasting, natural tasting, and refreshing. Yes, that's a perfect description of Del Monte tomato juice. That fresh, sunny flavor, that sparkling, natural taste which comes from the very best field-ripened tomatoes all adds up to real, deep-down, satisfying refreshment. Keep several cans of Del Monte tomato juice in the refrigerator. You'll find they come in mighty handy. And now we take you back to Cairo and tonight's Rocky Jordan story, A Stranger to the Desert. It all began when an Eskimo, yes, I said an Eskimo, fell through my front tambourine window with an eye on his back. And it figured the recent visit from the perfume doll and her boy Jabu connected up. That was a problem Sam Sabaya could have, so right away I put in a call for him at headquarters. Cairo Police, Greco speaking. Hello, Greco. This is for Sam. Put him on. And who is this speaking? Jordan, you know me. Where's Sam, Greco? Mr. Jordan, it happens that Captain... Is not Where is he? I want to talk to him. Captain Sabaya is at the present uh, attending an important meeting in Alexandria with the Minister of Internal Security. I am personally taking over his cases. Well, then you can tell me if there's anything new on the killing of the stranger. Please, be specific. The Eskimo, Greco. There seems to be nothing new. Is that all now? And then I got something to report. I get this, Greco. Be brief, Mr. Jordan. Can you not see... Listen... A couple of people just came into the tambourine, roughed me up looking for $40,000 they think I have. I don't know what it's all about, but I think it fits with the Eskimo killing. Duly noted. Now, here's a description. One was a girl, small, Eurasian, loaded with lots of perfume and a pearl-handled revolver. I didn't get her name, but the man... Are you listening? Mr. Jordan, must I again remind you that my time is limited? His name was Jabu. Duly noted, duly noted. You gonna do something about it, Gregor? If that completes your report... Oh, one more thing. They said they'd be back. Duly noted, Mr. Jordan. Ah. Well, with people punching at me, I couldn't wait around, for Greco or anybody. For a lot of reasons now, I had to know how and why a lonely Eskimo came to Cairo. A man that unusual shouldn't be too hard to trace, so I rung up a few hotels, but got no help. Then I hired a taxi and began making the rounds in person. I tried my friend Archie at Shepherd's. Eskimo? Oh, I say, Rocky, you Americans have such a quaint sense of humor. Eskimo, indeed. Next, I taxied on down the Sharia Suleiman Pasha and stopped at the Villa Victoria. A buxom lady held sway behind the desk. My good man, there are no Eskimos here, but you will find the bar on the lower floor. Good day. After that, I took a chance at the Acropolis Hotel. Desk clerk was very uncooperative. No, mister, we don't have Eskimos. And that goes for seals, polar bears, and walruses. Now get out with your bum jokes before I call the cops. I went on trying a few of the smaller hotels. Maybe I was getting tired, but so was somebody else I noticed following me. It was a third-rate tailing job, so I let him through the Musky Bazaar. And at the right spot, ducked around a corner. As he came by, I grabbed him and yanked him into an alley. Let me go uh, advance, monsieur. What's it about, mister? I was only walking this way. Too close behind. What do you want? Who are you? André Jean Deux. It means nothing to you. Uh, let me decide. Why are you following me? I told you I was only... Uh, 
I can keep trying. I do not wish to fight with you, Monsieur Jordan. So you know the name, too. Okay, from the beginning. What's your business? Yeah. I am a pilot, new to Cairo. I landed my cargo plane at the airport here last evening. Now, Monsieur, I must... Have... Not yet, Andre. Where are you from? Shoal Abar, Newfoundland. Yeah. Who else was aboard the plane? An Eskimo, maybe? That is right. He come here with me. Uh, let's hear all about him. Well, I, I do not know his true name. Everyone called him Johnny Silkskin. He was well-known in Newfoundland as a whaler. Why'd he come to Cairo? Uh, he hired my plane to transport a cargo for a delivery here. He came as a representative of a community of his people. Cargo of what? Monsieur, I do not know. Who killed him, Andre? Why? I also wish to know. He left the plane at the airport last evening, saying that he would come into Cairo to pick up his money. Uh, when did you see him again? Never. He was to return, and we would immediately take off for Newfoundland. I waited there for him all night, and this morning I read in the paper of his death at your cafe, Monsieur Jordan. And you thought telling me he'd get some answers? Monsieur, Cairo is a strange town. I could not be sure. How about I... that cargo? You still say you didn't know what it was? All he said was that his people had been fleeced before. Besides, he was paying good money, so why should I ask? Sure. Any idea about it? Well, uh, I'll confess that while he was sleeping, I opened one of his cases. What the stuff inside looked like? Uh, it was solid, rather fatty, streaked with black like marble, you might say. I recall a sweet, earthy odor. How much of the stuff was it? It weighed in at 2,000 pounds. Okay. Where's the stuff now? I do not know, monsieur. After I make my report at the airport office, I went back to the plane. A truck came and took the cases away. I do not know where. Look, uh, you know my address. Where do I find you? I'm at the caliph house, monsieur. Now take my advice and go back there, Andre. Then uh, you suspect there is danger? Why not? They kill once, they can kill again. I had something about the Eskimo now, but still no idea why he was killed. I had a hunch what the cargo was, but just to make sure, I decided to see Dr. Willoughby again. I talked with a consul and learned the doctor was living out near the university. When I got there, his room was stacked with all sorts of books. He seemed real glad to see me. Ah, oh, Mr. Jordan, come in, come in. Ah, sorry to bother you again, oh, Dr. Willoughby. Not but... at all. I presume your call is about the stranger who lies in the morgue. Yes, I have a few questions. As you see, I've been doing a little reading on the subject. Most unusual. Unusual. Yeah, well, uh, this is something now, else. Now, a moment, Mr. Jordan, to set your mind at rest. Mm -hmm. A moment. Mm -hmm. Ah, here we are. On the subject of the epicantic fold. Absolute proof that the man is an Eskimo. Well, it happens I know all about him, Dr. Willoughby. He is an Eskimo from Newfoundland. He was a whaler. Splendid, splendid. How did you learn? I've been talking to the pilot who brought him, him and the cargo to Cairo. Oh, cargo, indeed. Of what sort? Well, the pilot wasn't sure. He described it as uh, solid, fatty, blackish in appearance with a sweet, earthy smell. Could it be ambergris? What? It might very well be. What do you know of? Uh, only that it comes from Wales, used in making perfumes, isn't it? You are quite correct. It is vitally necessary for the making of certain perfumes of the East. And Cairo should be a good market. Any idea what it's worth? Oh, quite valuable and increasingly rare. Certain firms are frantic to get it. A pound is worth $20 or so. $20? That much ambergris would come mm, to about... Let me see, 2,000 pounds, that would come to $40,000 American. $40,000, exactly. I heard that figure once before today. You did? Yeah, Dame was at my cafe this morning looking for 40,000. A remarkable coincidence, Mr. Jordan. Yes, isn't it? Well, thanks, Doctor. That's all I wanted to know. It was enough for me. Maybe a few pieces didn't fit yet, but the police could take it from there and finish up. After all, I just run a cafe. 
So I went directly from Dr. Willoughby's place to headquarters. Greco was seated behind Sam Sabaya's desk when I walked in. All at once, he got very busy. I waited him out, and he finally looked up. You again, Mr. Jordan. I'm quite busy. Well, I'm saving you some work, Greco. You can clean it up quick now. Clean it up? There are important matters on my mind. They're killing Greco in my cafe last night. Oh, yes. You will leave that in my hands. That mean you got the two characters I called you about this morning? In good time, Mr. Jordan, in good time. Just what does this mean, Greco? You're doing something about this or not? The Cairo police need hardly answer to you. You'll answer to a lot of people. You will keep away from the files. It is an order. In good time, Greco. Mr. Jordan, I have given you an order. Come away from there. I'm just having a look at the Eskimo folder. Give it to me at once. Sure. Have a look at it, Greco. Not a thing in here since Sabaya's report last night. What about it? That means just one thing. You haven't done anything and you don't intend to do anything about a murder. A man knifed in the streets of Cairo. And why should I, Mr. Jordan? He's only an Eskimo, a stranger. Sure, only a stranger with no relatives or friends to press for him. No counsel to concern itself with his behalf. Guard your words, Mr. Jordan. What's the matter with you, Greco? Does it always take public opinion? Danger of a few votes cast the wrong way? Or maybe solving a poor Eskimo killing doesn't carry a promotion. Enough, Mr. Jordan. You will go now or I shall call the guards. Don't bother yourself, Greco, about anything. I'll handle it myself. It looked like it was all up to me. When I got back to the tambourine, there'd been a call from Andre, the pilot, wanting to see me right away. So I hurried to the caliph house. His room was on the third floor rear, and I went up. I found it, but I didn't have to knock. The door was already open. I took two steps in and stopped. and stood looking down at the lifeless figure of Andre Jando. My eyes didn't tell me anything, but my nose did. It was the heavy aroma of strong perfume, like I'd smelled before that day. My hand was on the knob of the open door, and suddenly I slammed it back to the wall. Are you pinned, lady? Toss out the gun. The gun first. Make it quick. That's better. Now come on out. You are very rude, Mr. Jordan. Just like your muscle man. Why didn't you send Jabu to do this? Please let me explain. All right. Tell me about Andre. I did not kill this man. Sure you didn't. It is true. When I got here, he was dead. Before I could leave, I heard you coming and hid behind the door. That's an old story. I've heard it before. I tell you, I did not shoot him. My gun was not fired. Look for yourself. Yeah. You believe me now? Maybe. Just who are you, lady? My name is Zora Harad. I own a perfume company in Calcutta. That much checks. What are you after, Zora? The money that is mine. Well, let's have the rest. The Eskimo wrote me from Newfoundland that he was bringing a ton of ambergris to Cairo for sale. He arrived last night, and by previous arrangement, he came to my hotel. We made a verbal contract for the purchase. $40,000. You paid cash? He was suspicious, would have it no other way. I gave him the money, he left, and I sent Jabu to take the cargo to my warehouse. Then, Mr. Jordan... Yeah? What then? I learned that the Eskimo had received a higher offer from the All Eastern Perfume Company. And a short time later, Jabu called to tell me that the cases he took from the plane were empty. You're trying to tell me Johnny Sealskin swindled you? I am sure of it. He took the money, then turned around and sold my ambergris to the All Eastern Company. So you killed him? I did not kill him. Perhaps I would have, with the chance. 
$40,000 is a great deal of money. You still think I've got it? I gave it to him. He was found at your cafe, and it was gone. You got it all wrong, Zora. Have I, Mr. Jordan? I didn't take your money, and Johnny didn't sell to all Easton. But I know who did. I gave back the gun and sent Zora to a hotel to wait. And right away, I hunted up the all-eastern perfume company down in the modern Shariazaki. I waited there around by the loading dock for a long time. It was shortly after the Muezzin's last call when a truck slowed at the entrance and turned in. I hopped down behind and rode it to the dock. A man got out and went to a door. Somebody let him in and was careless with the lock. I counted three and followed. It was a large, half-lit room. There were all sorts of bottles along the wall. I noticed several low, glass-covered perfume processing vats sunk in the floor, each with its own name. Desert Madness, Oriental Mist, Torrid Love, and so on. Two men went into a lighted office at the far end. I picked a good shadow just outside. You're listening to klfm.org in beautiful Split, Croatia. It was a great risk. I came all the way. Hold it. I'm not interested in where you got the hamburgers or how. I'm just willing to buy it. Have the money? Yes, all of it. Here. 45000 Now take it and get out of here. The back way. I don't want to be seen with you. Yes. Yes, I will go. How's the deal, Willoughby? Uh, what is that? Who are you? You know me, Dr. Willoughby. Uh, Mr. John, how did you get here? That all that bothers you? Don't come any closer. Yeah? Why so nervous? You hold the gun. Stay by the wall. Keep your hands up. Now, what do you want? $45,000. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. So I have to spell it out, eh? You're from Canada by way of Newfoundland, right? You do not frighten me. Why do you keep stepping back? Yeah, I got it from the Canadian consul. So you knew of the ambergris shipment. Came ahead into Cairo posing as a big professor. Did I, John? You took the stuff from the plane while the pilot was checking in, replacing it with empty cases. It's easy to get helpers around Cairo. I can see you know too much. You could have just delivered the stuff here and gotten by. Only that wasn't enough. You had to kill Johnny Sealskin for his money and the pilot, too, when he got out of you somehow. Very well, Jordan. But your lips will be sealed forever. His trembling hand came up with a gun. My raised hand had a bottle off a shelf, and I threw it. My throw deflected his shot, but he held the gun still backing up. He was about to aim again when his heel caught a perfume vat's edge, and he fell back. I got over to make sure he dropped the gun. I bent over, his flailing hands grabbed my wrist, and all at once I was in on top of him. And we were splashing around in a vat full of desert madness. I stayed on top and held his head under just long enough. And I dragged him out of the perfume stuff and dumped him on the floor. That's when I knew Dr. Willoughby and I would never be the same again. In just a moment, Rocky Jordan returns to conclude tonight's story. You know... Some folks insist on doing things the hard way, but not Mrs. Collins. She has the perfect answer when it comes to hot weather meals. But let's hear her tell about it. Why, it's very simple. I just prepare light meals, sometimes just cold cuts or cold roast beef. And I keep a bottle of Del Monte catsup handy on the table. It has such a wonderful, marvelous flavor, I can depend on it to perk up any meal. Just the other day, for instance, my husband wandered in from the backyard... Phew. Oh, it's been such a warm day today, honey. Let's just have something light for dinner. Oh, I'm way ahead of you, darling. The dinner's ready now. 
some crisp salad, iced coffee, cold roast beef, and your favorite Del Monte catsup. Oh, swell. You wonderful woman, you. I can always count on you to treat me right. And there you have it, Mrs. Collins' recipe for a cool meal on a hot day. And the point to remember is Del Monte catsup. Mmm, say, that zesty, lively, rich tomato flavor really perks up those light meals. And it makes planning summertime meals downright easy. Think of meatloaf or baked beans, franks, or cold roast with Del Monte catsup poured over just the way you like. Then, think of flavor. Rich, tangy tomato flavor that makes you want some more. That's right, you're thinking of Del Monte. So, next time you buy catsup, buy Del Monte... And it won't be long before you'll be saying, just like Mrs. Collins does. I always have a bottle of Del Monte catsup handy. It has such marvelous flavor. Back now to Rocky Jordan. Well, I worked on Dr. Willoughby till he came around. And I took him outside, put him in the truck, and in another half hour, we pulled up at police headquarters. They took over the ambergris cargo, and after giving Willoughby a shower and a change of clothes, they put him in a cell. I was counting on another round with Greco about then, but was happy to see Sophia back. As I sat down in his office, I noticed Sam leaning back in his chair. Jordan, would you kindly open that window? Oh, glad to, Sam. Hey, how was the trip to Alexandria? You're quite pleasant, thank you. Jordan. Yeah? What did you say you fell into? Uh, desert madness. <laughs> you say it does things to you. Desert madness. Uh, <clears throat> I quite agree. Now, about this Zora Harad, you suggest that neither she nor Jahabu had anything to do with the killing. That's right. She was just trying to get her money back. I see. <clears throat> Jordan, would you uh, please m- move back a little? Is this uh, it's all right, Sam? Yes, yes. Now, to continue... Oh, by the way, uh, Greco could have handled this if he'd been on the job. Well, do not condemn Greco too much. There are certain people who must take orders. He does that very well. Anyhow, Willoughby played it smart to a point. He knew enough about anthropology to come to Cairo posing as an authority. Yet he hardly expected to be called in on this case. No, but the safest thing was to play it straight. Nobody would suspect him. His only trouble was he knew too much about ambergris. Oh, and how so? Well, it's value, for example. That's what tripped him up. Without my telling him, he knew exactly how much ambergris came in on that plane. Two thousand pounds. <coughs> Desert madness. <coughs> uh, Jordan, would you do me a favor? Sure, Sam, anything. Name uh, it. Kindly return to the tambourine and give me the rest of your statement by telephone. the finest in tomato flavor. Enjoy the whole family of Del Monte tomato products. Del Monte catsup and chili sauce. Del Monte tomato sauce and canned tomato. And Del Monte tomato juice. Remember, buy wisely. Buy for flavor. Buy Del Monte. Del Monte, the brand you trust for flavor in so many good foods.
Rocky Jordan, written by Larry Roman and Gomer Cool, stars Jack Moyles in the title role with Jay Novello as Sam Sabaya, and is produced and directed by Cliff Howell with original music composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Remember, you have a date next week at the Cafe Tambourine, run by Rocky Jordan. Same time, same station. And the story is Adventure with Andrea. For the best peaches and cream you ever ate, buy Del Monte peaches, sliced or halved. Yes, whenever you want ripe, mellow, truly delicious peaches, look for the brand that puts flavor first, Del Monte. Larry Thor speaking. Rocky Jordan is presented over CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Mutations.